what I call Transgender Inc. deserves to be highlighted in a very visible way. Why? Sex reassignment surgeries and hormone replacement therapies are a combined value of $2.94 billion. By 2030, it would increase to $7.5 billion. There are no long-term studies that show the efficacy of taking these very powerful pharmaceuticals. One of the most graphic and invasive procedures is a vaginoplasty. That is where male-to-female patient is castrated, testicles are removed, and the penis is inverted to create a vaginal cavity. They can't even do lip filler in a convincing way in this country. You can't tell me they can recreate something as complex as female genitalia. The Biden administration has kind of tacitly endorsed reconstructive surgery for minors. The child will often know that they are transgender from the moment that they have any ability to express themselves. There's 300,000 transgender youth. That number has, by the way, doubled over five years. They face a lifetime of zero sexual function. It's almost too crazy. It's perverse. If someone had told you 15 years ago that kids in your, say, daughter's ninth grade class would be coming to school in drag and would be affirmed in that by their teachers and the broader community, you would say there's no chance that could happen in this country. And of course, it has happened and it's now happening at scale. Transgenderism is not just a fad, it's a fact of life across this country, not just the elites, but in small towns everywhere. And so the question is, how did something this unnatural and prima facie demented happened so quickly. Well, of course, there's gotta be money involved. Interestingly, no one that we're aware of has taken a close forensic look at where the money's coming from and where it's going. And that's why we're so delighted to see research done by our next guest, Chris Moritz, who's a longtime investment banker and policy guy, has done on this question, transgenderism. It didn't happen by accident, some people are profiting from it. And with that, we introduce our guest who joins us here on set. Thank you. Thank you, Tucker. It's beyond pleasure to be here. Well, it's, uh, we're grateful to have you. And there's been a lot of complaining mm -hmm. about this. It's clearly a destructive trend that's hurting people, particularly children, destabilizing the society. And it doesn't make any sense. Mm -hmm. So it's making all of us irrational. But for some reason, nobody has taken the time to figure out who's profiting from this. And you've done what I think is a spectacular dive into this, an amazing overview of the economics of transgenderism. So with that, I'll just kind of back off and let you describe what sure. you found. Well, I think um, there's so many elements to this, to this issue. Yes. Philosophical, religious even. Yes. Um, you know, religious sociological. Special, especially. Of course. Yeah. But the economics of it, what I call transgender inc. You know, is is something that uh, has gotten very very little attention, um, and it deserves to be highlighted in in very uh, visible way. Yes. Because this is a market that in 2018, um, uh, this market is made up of sex reassignment surgeries and hormone replacement therapies, which include a number of different pharmaceutical products. But the combined value sales of sex reassignment surgeries and the pharmaceutical products in 2018 was $2.94 billion. Um, by 2022, that, that figure had rose to $4.18 billion. And by 2030, 
Um, our analysis uh, indicates that that would increase to $7.5 billion, which represents an 8.5% compound annual growth rate, which is relatively significant um, within you know, a healthcare vertical. Well, it's bigger than the entire healthcare budgets of some African countries. For I mean, sure. It's a lot of money. Well, considering also that the population of patients is about a million people, there's 1.6 million transgender adults, uh, or, or I should say over the age of 13, uh, transgender individuals in the United States um, as of 2022. Um, now, that, that number has, has doubled in 10 years. So in 2011, there were 700,000 transgender um, Americans over the age of 13. And by 2022, that had risen to 1.6 million. Now, in, so you just ended the debate over whether this is something a person is born with. Well, I, I, I think that there, there is absolutely zero scientific evidence that would suggest that there is uh, a, you know, a gene, uh, chemical alteration, any kind of somatic, physical, biological element to transgenderism that would result in um, what has become known as gender dysphoria. And in fact, um, you know, we, if we get deeper into the medical research, we find that there are no clinical studies, none, on the long-term uh, efficacy, consequences, uh, and in many cases, debilitating life-term life um, effects of these procedures and pharmaceutical products, especially on children. Wait, there are no studies? There are none. In fact, the FDA has not approved a single um, uh, pharmaceutical uh, product used in gender transition um, specifically for gender transition. So uh, testosterone, estrogen, and what are called GNRH agonists or puberty blockers um, are all prescribed off-label. Um, so they do not have specific FDA approval for gender uh, gender transition because this is such a new field of, of medicine. Um, and, um, you know, many of these drugs, especially these GNRH agonists or puberty blockers, um, are, have been traditionally prescribed for, for cancer patients. Right. And Pro yet, prostate cancer, famously. Exactly. Um, so there's a drug called Lupron developed by AbbVie Pharmaceuticals. And this has gotten a lot of controversy and a lot of attention because uh, uh, in Texas, Ken, Ken Paxton has actually brought suit against AbbVie and another, another pharmaceutical company that makes uh, puberty blockers called Endo Pharmaceuticals uh, based on the fact that they are advertising uh, to children um, these, uh, these drugs off-label. For a non-FDA approved use? Correct. So testosterone feeds prostate tumors. Yes. So if you are diagnosed with prostate cancer, one of the therapies might be to lower your testosterone, correct? Correct. That's what this drug is used That's for. That's exactly right. But it's now being prescribed at scale to kids. Yeah. And there's no study suggesting the outcomes long-term? None. No peer-reviewed studies. Can you think of any, is there any other part of air quotes medicine where over a million people are being prescribed a course of quote therapy where we don't know the outcome? Um, yeah, I think there is a, there is an analogy that can be made, um, you know, as a millennial growing up in the nineties, 
what did, what was a what was a big trend at that time in uh, you know uh, uh, for for that cohort? ADHD. Yeah. Everyone was put on Adderall at a young age because you know school teachers identified hyperactive kids, and the process of getting going from uh, you know being identified as you know maybe a little different or whatever. At, at the school level, and then getting elevated to guidance counselors, then to psychologists, then to clinicians, and before you know it, you're prescribed, you know, a very powerful pharmaceutical drug. And I think something very a, similar, an addictive drug that'll give you brain damage for sure. And and I'll tell you the drugs that that are taking uh, that are being administered for for uh, transgender patients, especially these puberty blockers are far, far more dire. Can we back up yeah, for of one second? So, and I remember that very well. I had kids in school at the time. Hmm. The ADHD thing happened. And I always thought it was a cope for, you know, boring teachers teaching pointless material. And when kids got jumpy, they're like, you need drugs. Right. But I always assumed there was some sort of longitudinal research on the effects of of this in their work. Well, at the time, you know, at, the, at that time, it was still kind of a, a, a novel... Um, you know, a, a novel therapy, um, and really gained you know tr enormous amount of traction in, in the '90s. And I think what we're seeing, but it, they had no data to show that this would improve long-term outcomes. I can't outcomes. say whether there were whether there were peer-reviewed studies at the time. Um, uh, I, I believe that you know even today we don't know the long-term consequences necessarily of some of those specific drugs. But certainly, with with respect to the transgender. Uh, pharmaceuticals, there are no long-term studies uh, peer-reviewed that show the efficacy uh, or or not um, of, of, of taking these very powerful pharmaceuticals. And, um, you know, we, we may not know for some time. Uh, and in fact, what, what re has resulted in, uh, this has resulted in a situation where clinicians and institutions and academics and elementary schools and the entire gamut of this supply chain uh, has had to fall back on protocols established by an organization called WPATH. WPATH stands for the World Professional Association of Transgender Health. It's technically a medical uh, professional body established in the 1970s. Um, and um, but I think what's unique about it uh, is that it's it is it is for sure you know a, a medical entity, uh, but it is also an advocacy organization and a political advocacy organization for sure. So in so far as they are advoc advocating for the advancement of transgenderism, so in other words, uh, the protocols and uh, the clinical protocols that health systems. Um, you know, large and small are, that are, fall, are falling back on are the standards that WPATH um, it has enacted over the years. So can I ask you, Pastor, yeah. one sec? So in, in order for all of these therapies to become mainstream, you have to change the definition of gender dysphoria from something that you treat, a problem, a psychiatric illness. You have to change it from that to something very different. In, in fact, the clinical history shows just that. So in 1952, the first sex reassignment surgery happened, um, I, I believe at Johns Hopkins with a patient named Christine Jorgensen. It was very big news at the time. Um, and uh, 
Then uh, about 10 years later, Johns Hopkins established the first gender clinic um, for purposes of, of uh, performing sex reassignment surgeries. Um, but for most of the 20th century and uh, certainly the post-war period, uh, transgenderism or gender dysphoria as it's become known um, was deemed to be uh, a mental illness. Uh, it was called transsexualism or gender identity disorder. Um, and uh, this was kind of the basis for understanding treatment and it was deemed to be psychiatric. However, in 2013, the American Psychiatric Association amended DSM. DSM is the Di Diagnostic and Statistical Manual of Mental Illness. Yes. And in this change, um, they altered the nomenclature of, of, of the condition such that transsexualism or gender identity disorder became gender dysphoria. And what's significant about this change- so This is why the term transsexual, which was the term of art that people used, all people on all sides of the question, has disappeared. Of course. And, and well, I mean, let's, let's face it. If you remove the pharmaceuticals, if you remove the surgeries, what are you left with? You're left with a transvestite. Right. You're left with a crossdresser. Right. And that's it. And that's what it was for, for decades and decades. I mean, there were, you know, okay, like I said, some surgeries here and there, very small numbers. But really this, what we're seeing today accelerated after 2010. But I think most people, mm. if I can interject, didn't feel as threatened by that or threatened at all, speaking for myself, mm. because the stakes are low. Yeah. You put on different clothes. It's an eccentric copy of yours or whatever it is. Right. But you're not defacing your body. You're not stopping the natural process of maturation. Right. Right. So by, by, by defining uh, this condition as gender dysphoria, what it effectively achieved was removing the notion that this is a psychosexual disorder and that is in fact a... Uh, conflict between a subjective uh, I, uh, uh, you know, self-perception um, of gender or, or even a social perception of gender and um, you know, one's natural feelings about gender. And right. therefore, that can be a, that distress from, from, that comes from the, uh, the, the discontinuity between those two um, uh, can be alleviated by surgeries and these very radical pharmaceuticals. So I feel like I was born in the wrong body through plastic surgery and drugs. I can eliminate all of the anxiety that comes from feeling like I'm trapped. In that, the wrong I mean, that, that is the argument. And certainly for, for many like transgender patients, they report um, uh, positive benefits from, 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 from the process. However, Many, many also report regret, um, severe uh, physical ailments that come from uh, the surgeries themselves, which we can get into, and um, the complications that arise from those, and, and then, of course, the pharmaceuticals. Well, let's get into that, if we could, because sure. I spent, I don't know, the last five years talking about transgender stuff on TV, and I don't, and debating people on it. And I don't think I've ever heard anyone describe what exactly the surgeries are. I don't think you're allowed to ask. I haven't Googled for photographs because I'm not sure I want to see them, but that's like not part of the conversation. Like the details have kind of been omitted here. Mm. So what are the surgeries? They're purposefully omitted. 
So, well, okay, so let's get specific and turn well, this off if it bothers you. No, but... no. Uh, for, for instance, um, I think probably one of the most graphic uh, and um, invasive procedures is called a vaginoplasty. And that is where a, a, male, a male to female patient um, is castrated, testicles are removed, uh, the, the penis is inverted to create a vaginal cavity, and then uh, skin grafting is used to create uh, other, you know, other elements of female genitalia, vulva, labia, etc. Um, but what we're what we found is that um, there was a study from California. They can't even do lip filler in a convincing way in this country. You can't tell me they can recreate something of course as they, complex as female genitalia. Of, I'm sorry. Of course they can. And in, there's a study out of California of 869 vaginoplasty patients. Um, and of those uh, 869, 25% uh, 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 post-op uh, had uh, 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 side effects to the surgery that were so severe that they required additional hospitalization of those 25, 25%. Yes. And of those 25%, 44 have had to have major revisional surgery due to bowel uh, injuries, bleeding. Um, uh, also associated with this particular procedure is lo total loss of sensation. In other words, sexual functioning. Um, and total loss. Total loss. Irreversible. Hmm. So, um, you know, that's, that's one of the, I think the, the, the more, ex, you know, one of the more explosive of these procedures, but you know, it also includes mastectomies, which are performed at increasingly rate on, on minors, on girls. Um, uh, you know, uh, even the Biden administration, um, has kind of tacitly endorsed, uh, genital, uh, reconstructive surgery for minors on a case by case basis. This was promulgated uh, by, I believe, uh, Admiral Levine, uh, Rachel Levine. Oh, the dude in the yeah. military outfit. Sure. But can I ask, so like 10 years ago, again, just having spent life in cable news, I remember all the debates. And you sort of wonder, like, whatever happened to that? Like the female genital mutilation, FGM. This was something that your garden variety NPR donor was very upset about. Sure. Like 10 years ago. Yeah. I haven't heard anybody mentioned female genital mutilation in the United States in quite some time now. Is that because we now officially engage in it? Of course, we export it to the rest of the world. The rest of the world, the rest of the developed world, which were in fact, uh, the Scandinavian countries in particular had had, you know, kind of, you know, prior in the, in the early 2000s and in the 90s even, we're really at the forefront of this field of medicine. I thought it was the Muslims who had these crazy radical ideologies and they were exporting female genital mutilation. And now it's well, the West. Actually, <laughs> I mean, actually in, in Iran, uh, uh, Iran is one of the largest centers for sex reassignment surgery in the world. What? Yeah. Because, because they're anti-gay and transgenderism. I mean, it's a... It's, it's a very quietly held, but widely held view, I think, amongst um, the, the LGB community. The transgenderism is anti-LGB. Well, of course it is. Of course it is. And, and in Iran, where homosexuality is illegal, they have a very simple solution. Vaginoplasty. Cut it off? Yeah. 
So, um, well, you just blown my mind. I had no idea. Yeah. Wow. Um, and I, I'll tell you, uh, in terms of uh, the, the the pace of growth for, let's say, g- clinics uh, serving pediatric patients on, on gender issues, in fifteen last fifteen years in the United States, we had zero, down to over a hundred clinics clinics for kids. Why? It's a very complicated. Um, it's a very complicated question, and there's a lot of different reasons why. Um, I, I would say that the biggest single policy catalyst for this explosion is Obamacare. When Obamacare was uh, enacted in 2010, there was a kind of very quietly. Um, uh, uh, kind of written into the law, a provision in which insurance companies were mandated to, to provide coverage for what is deemed to be medically necessary gender-affirming care. As a result of that, between 2010 and 2016, there was a 50% increase in sex reassignment surgeries, 25% increase in um, uh, insur- uh, insurance, co- insurance coverage for transgender individuals. Uh, and then at the very end of the Obama administration, 2016, an additional amendment to the Affordable Care Act was made whereby uh, uh, gender identity could no longer be a basis for denial of coverage um, uh, by private insurance companies. As a result of that, the next year, 20, from 2016 to 2017, there was 150% increase in sex reassignment surgeries in the United States. The Trump administration in, very early on re- revoked this provision. And then of course the Biden administration put it back in place with, I think within the first hundred days. So they're required to pay for it. How expensive is it? Well, um, a total transformation or a transition rather uh, for male to female is approximately $142,000. And what does that entail? That would entail what's called bottom surgery and top surgery. So that would be castration, fake non-functional vagina and and uh, breast implants. Exactly. But that does not... um, I mean, this is too crazy. It's almost too crazy. It's, it's, it's perverse. Can I just ask a question that, uh, does anyone study the sex lives of post-op transsexuals? Like, how are they? Uh, well, as I said, um, for many, many patients that have, uh, especially the, the male to females that have, uh, uh, procedures, general reconstruction procedures, they, uh, you know, face a lifetime of zero sexual function because they, lo- they lose sensitivity um, you know, in this artificial vagina. Um, what about constructing an artificial penis? Are they better at that? That seems to be more uh, efficacious um, because it involves- a Less ro- complicated. Well, it's less complicated. Um, it's, it's also uh, you know, p- part of the process of, of, let's say, administering testosterone to, to women results in an enlargement of the clitoris. Yes. And that can be used um, as a basis to create a neophallus. So that's one procedure. That costs about 50,000. That can actually cost 
up to $150,000, depending on you know the the health system, but it's generally about fifty. So in that specific case, if I mean, since we know that testosterone and estrogen too, I mean, these are really powerful chemicals, mm. and they're implicated in all kinds of health. They're necessary, but they're implicated in health disorders like cancer, and, but but others as well. If you pump a man full of estrogen or a woman full of testosterone, like what are the health consequences of that? Leaving aside, there, I mean, sex again, again, we have no long term studies on the effects, long-term effects of these pharmaceuticals uh, on transgender patients. There, there's, there's simply none. So clinicians fall back on guidelines established by uh, WPATH. Um, by and, a transgender political group. Yes, yes. Um, this is a very interesting anecdote about WPATH. There was a uh, clinical psychologist at UCSF uh, who is the uh, U.S. chapter president of WPATH, and she, she is transgender. And in 2000, I believe 2021, she made a public statement that uh, she believed that the industry was moving way too fast and there was sloppy medicine and uh, uh, propensity for false positives in adolescence, resulting in potentially irreversible changes for, for these kids. As a result of this statement, WPATH forced her to resign and then issued a moratorium on all of its board members from ever speaking to the press. That's crazy. Yeah. That's not science. No. But uh, you have to wonder about just your garden variety physician who is swimming in this soup funded by the insurance companies, led by the nose by activist groups like WPATH and the Human Rights Campaign, et cetera. And the effect is like scary medicine that's destroying people's lives. Like where are all the doctors standing up and saying, whoa, that's not science. This is bad for people. I don't ever see them. Where are they? In this country, they're hard to find. In other countries, which actually has longer histories of, of this kind of uh, treatments and product lines, um, um, there, there's, there's a significant pushback. In fact, in, in England, um, the leading uh, pediatric clinic for gender dysphoria, it's called the Talistock Talis Clinic, um, was shut down by the NIH, which is the, uh, the uh, UK health system or uh, health administrator. Um, because of, of, again, sloppy diagnoses, um, uh, uh, concerns that doctors were neglecting their duty of care, uh, informed consent, and so it's opening up potential tort litigation. Um, but it does against, seem like, yeah. I mean, we have tens of thousands of physicians in this country and they're all well-educated and by definition smart and you'd like to think they're responsible and ethical, but it seems like they've been so corrupted. Like, how could they stand by and allow this to happen? Well, how can they go on TikTok and, and Instagram and advertise uh, specifically to targeted transgender youth that are following these feeds and promoting their services? Um, you know, is that is that medicine or is that retail medicine? Right? So I want to ask you about the economics in a minute, mm. but I'm just I'm struck by the moral corruption, of course, and wondering. I mean, there are a lot of crappy talk show hosts out there, and I always felt like, well, I'm a talk show host. I should probably say something. You know what I mean? Sure. Like, because it's embarrassing. Um, 
but I don't hold anyone's life in my hands. If right. I was a doctor, it would it feels like there's a moral obligation to say something. So um, this is a gender-affirming surgeon. Hmm. This is a lunatic with a knife called Sieve Gallagher uh, describing a brand new group of, of patients. Watch this. A group of gender diverse individuals who haven't been very visible are eunuchs and there is an entire chapter devoted to these folks in the most recent version of the WPATH standards of care, WPATH is the World Professional Association of Transgender Health. And so basically a eunuch is somebody who's assigned male at birth but may not be comfortable with the masculine features and may also benefit from gender affirmation care which could mean orchiectomy in some patients. Now we have to be very careful because we know that if we just take away sex hormones completely, patients can have problems with osteoporosis and cardiovascular disease. So usually the patient will supplement on either low-dose testosterone or low-dose estrogen, and it requires specialized care. But sometimes this is an important part of gender affirmation surgery for this uh, group of patients. So just in case you're wondering if this is medieval, mm. here you have apparently a physician Proudly creating eunuchs, presumably to guard the harem somewhere. Exactly. I mean, what? So, but, but like, where are all the other surgeons who are like, wait, that's fully crackpot? That's pre science? Uh, there is definitely a pushback, but institutions are crushing that yeah. dissent. That's what it is. Just right? like what I cited with, with the clin uh, clinical psychologist at, uh, you know, who's the, the WPATH. No, that's, that's US what it is. U.S. chair. It's the institute. It's like everyone watched the 2020 election get stolen, but nobody can say anything because you'll get crushed. Look, and it's not just healthcare institute. It's not just health systems. It's not just pharmaceutical companies. It's corporate America. So, for instance, um, there is an, a uh, an entity called the Tawani Foundation. The Tawani Foundation is led by Jennifer Pritzker, who is the transgender sister of Governor of Illinois, J.B. Pritzker. And she established a, uh, a nonprofit uh, entity called the Tawani Foundation and then a private equity vehicle called Tawani Enterprises. Tawani Foundation has, in, uh, has established grants all over the world to um, propagate transgenderism at the, at the university levels, um, funding uh, legal, you know, uh, 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 you know, legal battles um, and legislative initiatives, um, but they you know, in, uh, have also um, partnered with corporate entities. So for instance, in 2013, Tawani, in conjunction with Wells Fargo Foundation, established a grant at UC Santa Barbara to study transgenderism in the US military. <laughs> to study transgenderism in the US military. Promote. Promote. So can you tell me what you think the motive is in corporate America getting behind something so obviously destructive? Well, I think that, um, you know, as, as you have opined many, many times, um, corporate America gets their marching orders from uh, HR departments. HR departments get their marching orders from universities. Universities are um, we, we know what the, the culture and uh, uh, mores are of 
you know, our, of our elite institutions. And even these medical associations and boards, um, WPATH included, have strong affiliations with universities. Um, these ideas are coming out of universities. And why that is, uh, there's many, many reasons why. I would argue it's, it's a kind of extension of postmodernist cultural Marxism because transgenderism, you know, if we're looking at it philosophically, um, is ultimately about rejecting what is a foundational principle, um, philosophical principle in Western civilization, which goes back to Aristotle, that there is such a thing as objective truth and reality. Yes. But transgenderism. And beauty. Is, yes. But transgenderism is to say there is no such thing as an objective reality that you are born a male or female. It is your subjective perception of your gender identity that is actualized and made real and where it becomes kind of authoritarian as a movement in the fact that the movement demands society recognize that subjective reality as truth. And I feel that that is one of the most disturbing things about this entire movement. They've created an entire lexicon that is, um, uh, you know, for instance, gender affirming care. What does that mean? What does, what does it mean um, to be assigned a sex at birth as, as it's often uh, referred to in the literature? Yeah, I mean, I, I, you know, one argument can be made, it's very anti-God, right? It's, it is, you're assigned a, a gender and that can be changed by, by medical because science. Because you're God. Because, right. Uh, it also looks a lot like human sacrifice to me. Hmm. I mean, castrate your sons yeah. and you'll somehow benefit. I mean, most people, I would say throughout, you know, as long as people have existed, kind of want their children to reproduce and sort of carry on the line. That's like the core human desire. And this ends it. I mean, you castrate your son, you, you have no grandchildren. Yeah, but, but why, why, why are parents agreeing to this? They're doing so because, and there are many, many anecdotes uh, related to this in, in across the literature and across uh, a lot of investigative journalists reports on this subject is that parents are presented you know, especially at that initial meeting uh, with a, you know, at a gender clinic with, with a, um, you know, a, a choice. They'll say, you can either, your, your son can either be a daughter or you can have a dead son. Right. And they will scare the hell out of them with statistics about suicide rates and all sorts of other mental illnesses that will, you know, su suggestively, um, uh, uh, come to fruition if you do not take this course of action. Ironically, in Sweden, which was really at the one a leader, you know, in this in this in this area of medicine and in this field, um, a Swedish study uh, a couple of years ago found that uh, post-op transgender patients have a significantly higher uh, likelihood of making suicide suicide attempts and. Uh, requiring uh, inpatient psychiatric care than the overall gener general population. Is, is, is this, is it only the white countries that are doing this or the non-white countries that are super anxious to castrate their kids? Well, I can tell you it's not happening in China. Right. It's India? not happening in Japan. It's not happening in India. Uh, in Thailand, um, they have long had a, um, 
cultural concept of like a third sex. Yes. And so there's a lot of, in fact, it's a big market for sex change surgeries. And for sex trafficking. Yeah, and yeah. sex trafficking too. So, um, but What but, about but, Sub-Saharan Africa? <laughs> I mean, they certainly have, uh, you know, I think a, a, a strong market share on the genital mutilation uh, sure. sub-segment. But uh, in terms of uh, uh, transgenderism, I, I, I think that's a that's a non-starter. This is an American export at this point. Yeah, but it's the it's the Anglosphere too in Scandinavia, and so it's Western Europe, in, the United but, States. But in, in England, they're push, pulling back from this as well. There 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 are a, there are a number of tort important tort cases centered around. Um, uh, neglect, uh, uh, negligence by doctors when it comes to duty of care and um, informed consent uh, for transgender youth. So what, a, just back to the money, um, which I've given short shrift to, my apologies. So who's profiting? You know, you, you bring your eighth grader into a gender clinic, kid's got to transition or else he's going to kill himself. Who makes money going forward? Well, um, Cedar sinai Hospital Health System in Los Angeles is the market leader in the sex reassignment surgery, U.S. sex reassignment surgery market. They have a eight, eight, approximately an 8% market share. It's highly fragmented overall. No, you know, no, no, no uh, single entity really has a share greater than 8%. So, you know, these, these are very often regional uh, and highly competitive um, uh, space, but, but regional. And Cedars uh, has a dedicated uh, transgender clinic. Um, the, the, the revenue from, from the surgeries uh, 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 brought on by that, that clinic uh, in 2022 amounted to over $200 million. That is on revenue of, uh, I believe, eight, $8 billion uh, for Cedars overall. Cedars doesn't have a board or there are no, I mean, there's no oversight of this. The board, everyone... the board encourages it. Um, in fact, uh, there, 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 there are very perverse incentives for health systems um, to go full on board uh, with um, this, you know, this line of service and this line of products uh, because entities like the Human Rights Campaign have established um, what is essentially ESG for trans. They call it HEI, Health Equity Inclusion. So Human Rights Campaign about 15 years ago established this uh, national benchmarking tool and it effectively is a equity and inclusion um, uh, gauge for health systems. And it is used coercively. Um, and examples of that uh, would be that in uh, 2020, the Children's National Hospital um, received a low HEI score. And as a result of that, the board of directors of the hospital uh, immediately uh, established a DEI subcommittee and then extended sex reassignment surgery coverage to all of their employees and their dependents under the age of 18. The next year, H, uh, Children's National Hospital received 100% HEI support. But it's a hospital filled with self-described scientists. Nobody's piped up and said, there's zero evidence this is a good idea. We don't have a single study suggesting this works. Mm. No one said that? Well, I, I mean, there, there's, there's certainly a, um, st studies that would show that, uh, and, and again, like 
these are not necessarily peer reviewed, but there's studies that show that transgender patients um, are sometimes very satisfied with results. But on the other hand, many times they're not. Over what period? Um, well, I mean, that's a great question too, because- I mean, if you take a 17 year old and pump him full of hormones he wasn't born with, like, you know, there have to be massive physical and psych psychological well, consequences. Well, okay, so with puberty blockers in particular, uh, which suppress testosterone um, in, in men in particular for prostate cancers, as you, as you cited, and, and affect the pituitary gland um, uh, and suppress the onset of puberty. This was, this was also developed to address what's called precocious puberty. Right. So, um, that would be, uh, you know, uh, kids- Early onset. Say, yeah. Six, nine years old who start developing early. And yep. this is what it's administered for. But the, the long-term effects of, of these drugs, um, especially in, in healthy, basically healthy patients, and let's face it, transgender patients do not necessarily have any other comorbidities or medical problems. They are, they're healthy adults. It's, it's in the mind, um, you know, that r results in, uh, the initiation of treatment. Um, and uh, in, in the case of puberty blockers, you, you have uh, concern even amongst uh, gender uh, clinicians that uh, brain development may be significantly impacted um, by the administration of these drugs because if you suppress uh, ma you know, natural maturation, that includes brain development at a very critical stage in adolescence. So, so we have, you know, that's a side effect. There's concerns about bone density. There's concern, certainly concerns about long-term fertility rates. Um, it goes on and on and on. You said there are two big manufacturers of puberty blockers? Well, there's, there's several. The, the, the leading pharmaceutical players in this space include Pfizer, uh, a company called AbbVie Pharmaceuticals. Pfizer, what does Pfizer make? Pfizer makes testosterone, estrogen, and puberty blockers. Primarily though, uh, it's testosterone and estrogen. And I, I wanna stipulate that um, the, the overall sales for um, these product lines um, at the, within the pharmaceutical companies are, are, re are relatively small because the number of patients is very small. There's um, uh, 300,000 transgender youth, so 13 to 17 in the United States. That number has, by the way, doubled over five years from 2017 being 150,000 to uh, 300,000 um, by 2022. Um, and uh, so, um, you know, so, so these pharmaceutical companies are not necessarily making huge amounts of money off of these drugs. Uh, I think really the big the big money is coming from from health systems and the surgeries because they're just so expensive um, um, and incorporate you know obviously a lot of ancillary costs related to surgeries in general. Um, as I said, you know revision surgeries are are, are uh, uh, you know a, a frequent issue um, with with transgender sex reassignment. Um, because they're just so invasive and so complicated. It takes 12 to 18 months to recover from a vaginoplasty or a phalloplasty. Knowing as much as you do about how this began and who's profiting, if you wanted to stop it or slow it down 
or make it less likely that your eighth grader wants to transition? What, what would you do? Well, I think, I think that, um, I think when you're talking about an eighth grader, for instance, who exhibits, let's say, you know, strong feminine qualities at an early age may very well just, just be, just be gay. But, um, in the day, in the kind of the time that we live in now, uh, that eighth grader is scrutinized by, you know, a, a eighth grade teacher, den- identified as potentially gender dysphoric, referred to a guidance counselor, who then refers to a local psychologist, who then refers to, uh, the, 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 the eighth grader and its parents to a gender clinic, go to the gender clinic, um, and a, um, a clinician will, will make a very stark um, assessment uh, and raise the stakes for these parents saying, you know, you can have, the, again, as I said, a, 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 dead, a dead son or, or a transition daughter. And there was a, uh, a study that Reuters did uh, last year of uh, 18 uh, pediatric clinics, gender clinics in the U.S., uh, and to assess basically the process of evaluation, um, it, they came to the following um, conclusion. Effectively, patients will uh, meet with a social worker, a psychologist, and a clinician, either a pediatrician or an endocrinologist. They'll take uh, a you know, two-hour meeting, assess medical history, uh, talk about it the benefits and risks and so on and so forth, present these suicide statistics. And Reuters found that seven of these 18 clinics um, would, after, you know, uh, um, you know, after they were made sure there was no obvious red flags or comorbidities and that the, pa- that the child and parents were in agreement, which is, I think is interesting, the child would be in agreement to this um, equally with the parents then um, uh, most then of these seven uh, 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 clinics, uh, they are comfortable after this two-hour meeting, after a first meeting, to make a gender uh, dysphoria diagnosis and uh, prescribe these powerful ph- pharmaceuticals. Any idea what percentage of the families were single-parent, female-headed? I don't know that. It's a good question. It's hard to imagine too many dads going along with this, but... Maybe, but, maybe we're that but, but in California recently, there was uh, legislation um, that uh, uh, can effectively uh, take custody away from, from uh, let's say, a dad who objects to the gender affirmation of their kid. Yeah. Well, that's just stealing your child. And to what end? It's just interesting. I mean, you know, it's a passive country that nobody's resorted to violence. I mean, in a normal culture, if someone said, we're going to take your child away and castrate him, I mean, you know, you would die before you let that happen. Yeah. I mean, again, I think that so much of this has to be viewed in parallel with the radicalization that happens at the at the primary school level and at university school level. Um, frankly, e- Elon Musk has talked about this, his own experience with this um, at an you know, elite private school in Los Angeles, where um, he, uh, his daughter, uh, or son, uh, rather, um, became kind of politically radicalized and then trans- transitioned. And, and you'll find, I think, that um, the, the, you know, the, the political radicalization and the gender radicalization 
are both coming from the universities and they both have the same end goals, which is to uh, break down the foundations of, of our country and of our civilization as, as we have, you know, uh, have, have established for, for millennia uh, to replace it with something new in their, in their image. Um, and it is a kind of uh, playing God um, and it's a kind of cultural revolution um, that I think, uh, you know, even has some, some um, you know, parallels to the chi China's uh, cultural revolution. Yeah. Which seems a little bit less absurd than this. Just saying. Oh, in, in many ways. Yeah. Chris, thank you for all of this. Thank you. All of the research you did and thank for you. so clearly explaining it. Thanks. Appreciate it. Thank you.